For those of you who've been around College Park Church for a while, you may have heard me talk about what I've called the dark side of God's will. For those of you who've never heard that before, it's my attempt to create a metaphor for certain seasons of life where in the midst of difficulty, it feels as if God has abandoned you. You're on the dark side of God's will. In 2012, on Psalm 89, I preached a message and I described the dark side of God's will this way. By this I mean those moments when you are in the orbit of God's will, but for a moment you are in a place where the warm glow of his promise-keeping grace is eclipsed by difficulty, confusion, and pain. Being on the dark side of God's will doesn't change the certainty of the providential orbit or the presence of the promise-filled sun. Yet, the eclipse creates an environment that feels dark and cold and lonely. You know that one day the sun will shine again, but it seems like a long way off when you're on the dark side of God's will. I don't know if that captures what you've seen or experienced in your life. It certainly captures, at least for me, those moments when I wonder, God, I know you're in control and I believe that you've got a sovereign plan, but right now it feels like you have left me all alone. That concept is helpful for me when I need to trust that God is in fact working out a bigger plan than what I can see, and I have anchored my heart to God's sovereignty when life is painful, when it's confusing, and when life seems unfair. There's the dark side of God's will. But there is another angle, another aspect of this dark side of God's will that we need to talk about. In the same way that the bigness of God's plan informs how we see circumstances in life that are difficult and challenging, so too the bigness of God's holiness must inform how I see the problem of sin in the world and how I see the problem of sin in me. So when life becomes confusing and you're wondering what's going on, that's when your view of God and your view of his plan really matters. But when you see the effects of sin in the world, when you see the consequences of sin in the world, when you see judgment fall on a person or a family or a nation or a society, that's also when your view of God really matters. When you look back at history and you see the judgment of God, your view of God in that moment matters. How you interpret what is going on is directly related to how big is your vision of God. And in the same way, you need a big vision of God when life is confusing, you also need a big vision of God when life has consequences. So, here's my question. What is your view of God as it relates to his holiness, and as it relates to his sovereignty. For that matter, how big is God to you? How different is he from you? And then, how does that affect your perspective on sin? How does that affect how you view your own sin? How does that affect 
how you pray, and for that matter, how you lament. I would suggest to you that lament helps us with this big view of God in that lament tunes the heart to the glory of God. Lament allows us to hear the symphony of God's holiness and righteousness, even if it's in a minor key. If this is your first Sunday with us, we're studying, if you couldn't tell, lament. What is lament? Lament is a heartfelt cry as a believer pours their heart out to God in prayer. It, it serves for the Christian as an interpreter. Lament interprets. There's a thing that's happened, and lament helps us to get underneath the thing and helps us to get above the thing. In other words, what's the root of what has happened and where is the ultimate resolution to what has happened? And in that way, to cry is human, but to lament is inherently Christian. Lament, from a Christian perspective, is one of the most theologically rich things that we do, and it ought to be because what you really think about God and what you think about yourself surfaces in the moments when you see the righteousness of God being leveled against sin. As it relates to suffering, I've compared it before to this surfacing that happens of sediments in our lives. I've compared before our lives to a beaker with a solution and sediment underneath. And when suffering comes, God bumps our beaker and we, we look all pure and righteous and everything else. And then when our beaker gets bumped, all the sediment comes to life and you can't believe what comes out of your mouth. You can't believe what's rolling on in your heart. You can't believe the challenges and the issues that are going on inside of you. And, 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 and part of the trauma of a beaker bump is what happens you get to see yourself for who you really are. When we witness God's judgment or we see what God does, we also see what lies underneath. Lamentations 2 surfaces what you really think about God. Some of you, as that text was being read, 22 heavy verses, in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, brother, is this depressing. Others of you, as you heard it, your heart didn't go there, like this is the downer Sunday. Instead, your heart trembled because you know this is really what God is like. So lament helps us in that it, it tunes the heart. It tunes the heart to not only one aspect of who God is, but to other aspects of who he is. So. What lament does is it reminds us that God is merciful and kind and gracious. Please understand, he is full of mercy and ready to forgive sin. And he is holy and just and should be feared. So there is another side to grace. As I said last week, grace is only amazing because judgment is real. And that statement should make you both rejoice and tremble. I think Christians should have in their hearts frightening joy. Lamentations 2 is a poem about the glory of God in judgment. And I wonder for how many of you, does that sentence even work for you? The glory of God in judgment. So what I want to do is show you what Lamentations 2 says, 
I promise you I will keep it balanced. You need to know there's no happy resolution to this chapter. It doesn't end and they lived happily ever after, and I'm grateful for that because there are many days or weeks or months, or for some of you, years, that there's been no resolution. And what I hope to do is walk us through Lamentations 2 and then also connect you to the ultimate resolution, which is the gospel. How does Lamentations 2 and the cross intersect? Let's see. First, the wrath of God. The first 10 verses are a poetic expression of what the judgment of God is like as it relates to the city of Jerusalem. And again, if this is your first Sunday with us, 586 BC, the city of Jerusalem was leveled. God had warned her, the city of Jerusalem and the people of God over and over and over about their waywardness and finally it came to a point where there was no turning back and as a result they faced the judgment of God. That's the setting. So Lamentations 2 is a poetic expression of what Jeremiah the prophet sees when he looks at the city. The first word of the first verse, again, is the word how. It was the same word that's in chapter one and verse one. It could really serve not only as a question, as also a cry of pain, as, and also a struggle in terms of what's going on in the city, but it also serves as the title for the entire book. Chapter two is an amplification of what we've seen in chapter one. And again, like in chapter one, there are 22 verses. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. In the same way that every verse in the first chapter started with the subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so that happens as well in the second chapter. In order to demonstrate, I think, that God's judgment is complete in total, it is from A to Z in our English alphabet. It is complete in its scope. Verse one serves as the theme for the entire chapter. Look at it. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. No, notice some things in this verse. First, the Lord is angry. Are you okay with that? It's not a comfortable image, but it's real. The God of the universe the creator of the world, the one who holds righteousness in the very essence of his being, can be and is justifiably and righteously angry with the presence of sin in the created order. Secondly, even though the people of God are precious to him, they're described as the daughter of Zion, he has set her under a cloud. That's where the series title comes from, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. What's the cloud? The cloud is the cloud of judgment. What's more, the glory of the people of God has fallen. He's cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. So what was the glory of Israel is now gone. It has been extinguished. The, the blessed people of God are now a disciplined people. And finally, the footstool, which is a reference to the temple or the city, are no longer remembered it seems as though they have been forgotten by God. God has withdrawn his hand of blessings from them. In fact, if you want a, an assignment from today, go and read Ezekiel chapter eight through 10, and you will see the systematic movement of the spirit and the glory of God outside of the temple, and God leaves the city. 
The rest of the chapter paints a relentless picture of God's wrath against the nation. Look at verses two to three, and notice the verbs. Verbs are really helpful to look at, and they provide color and action. Jeremiah doesn't want just to tell you that the city has been destroyed. He says instead in verse two that the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. He he wants to amplify what you feel, and that's why he uses such poignant and powerful language. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Verse three, he has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. You get the point. Verb after verb after verb after verb. He wants you to see from various angles. The city's been leveled. The temple's been destroyed. The people are no longer there. They're off into exile. And he wants you to know the extent of this destruction and how bad it is. But there's something else he wants you to know. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy. He wants you to know that God is the one who is behind it. The Babylonian army was the means, but at the end of the day, it was God who was behind that. He didn't just allow it, he purposed it. Now that raises all kinds of questions, I know, and we could discuss that, and I could bring close resolution to that question in your mind. I'm making a statement that I couldn't somehow get close to resolving but I don't want you to go to all the other questions. I just want you to leave the text right where it is and realize that God was the one who had sent the Babylonians. The Babylonian army was the judgment of a holy God. Jump now to verse six. We'll come back to verses four and five. The judgment of God even extends to the worship of God's people. has laid in ruins his meeting place. He's made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. He spurned king and priest. He scorned his altar. He's disowned his sanctuary. He's raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. This, I gotta just explain to you what this means. It means that in the very temple area where there used to be people coming and worshiping and sacrifices that were being offered. There's there's no longer any sacrifices. There's no longer any worshipers. Instead, like in a festival, you have the Babylonian army raising spear and sword and cheering the victory that they have over God's people and therefore over God himself. And they're having a festival where there used to be worship. That's the image. The protection is gone. Look at verse eight. The walls and ramparts of the city have been laid in ruins. Verse nine, the gates have been knocked over. There's there's no means for the enemy to be held back anymore. There's no defense of the city. She's entirely exposed. Verses nine and 10, her culture is ruined. Their leaders have been taken captive. There's no longer access to the law. The prophets have no word from the Lord. In other words, it feels tragically like the heavens are closed. God's no longer speaking. He's no longer showing up. He's no longer giving them the word. He's no longer giving them instruction as to who they are to be the people of God. Heaven is silent. They cry out, hear us from heaven, and there's nothing. The priests 
No longer hear from God. Elders are sitting in silence. Young women are weeping. What, what, the, what the picture is is that everything, absolutely everything is ruined. Everywhere you look, there's just utter destruction. That's the image. You get the point of what Jeremiah wants you to see? Now go back to verse four and five because there's a concerning word here. It says, he has bent his bow, or rather verse four, yeah, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. Verse five, the Lord has become like an enemy. The wrath of God is now turned against Judah and the results have been absolutely terrible. And God, it seems, has become an enemy of his own people. Now the words seems and feels are really important. God feels like an enemy, it seems like he's an enemy because in the end he isn't. It feels in this little moment like God is the enemy, but the ultimate end game of God is to discipline his people, to awaken their heart, to bring him back to himself. So he is not their enemy, but he is their God. And in this moment, it feels as though he is against them, but his end goal is to bring them back to himself. What has happened is the people of God are now under his judgment. His wrath against their sin has being, is being poured out in full measure. And despite the fact that they're his chosen people, despite the fact that they are recipients of his covenant love, despite his continual warnings, the nation has reached a tipping point where the scales of divine justice have now tipped. He's leveled the temple. He's scattered his own people. He's ruined his own city. Why? Listen very carefully. Why? Because the center of the center of the center of the universe is not the nation of Israel. And as glorious as the temple is and as mighty as they were as a people and as splendor as it was to have God dwell among them, they weren't the central reality of the created order. God is and was. And what they missed was the fact that they could be the chosen people, they could have God's presence among them, but at the end of the day, if they didn't have God himself and didn't worship him in spirit and truth, then they were forgetting who was really supreme. Do you know that's not just a problem for Israel in 586? One of the stunning, blunt realities that hardship brings is the reminder that I'm not the center of the universe. That God not only has a plan for my life beyond what I can think about, but also the brokenness of the world and the brokenness within me is bad enough and big enough and difficult enough that difficult circumstances happen that may not even be directly my fault. I'm part of a culture, part of a world that is in rebellion against God and he is so holy and so righteous that the brokenness of the world declares I'm not the center of it, he is. In the Old Testament, if you were to point to a moment of time that would show you an aspect of the holiness of God, you would point to 586 B.C. If someone were to say to you, how holy is God? I think somebody would say, well, let me tell you what happened in the late 500s. Where is that point then in the New Testament? Where is the place where we see how bad sin is and how holy God is? Where is it the way, where is the place rather that when we, we, we see an image of something that it changes our thinking about both who we are and who God is? You know what that 
that place is? You know where that spot is? It's in the cross. It's in the cross that we see the wrath of God poured out. It's in the cross that we see the justified righteousness of God on display. Two verses in the New Testament. Listen to them. This is Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Here it is. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's another one, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I've said this before, that if this was not in the Bible, I would not be comfortable saying it this way about Jesus. But this is what the Bible says about him, that for our sake, he, meaning God, here it comes, made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin. That's a problem. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does it mean? It means that Jesus became cursed, that Jesus became sin, that the Father crucified his own son in order so that the sins of those who put their trust in Christ might be atoned for. It means that Jesus died a ghastly death. Why? Because of the holiness of God. The ability to be forgiven by a holy God is directly dependent upon the significance of this sufficient sacrifice. God is able, according to Romans 3.26, to be both justifier and just because of the cross of Christ. So it's not just that he forgives sins, but he forgives sins because he's poured out his wrath on Christ. You may be the recipient of grace because you're a follower of Jesus and have received Christ as your savior, but you need to know that your sins were paid for, that God's righteousness was levied upon someone else, that you receive a righteousness that you didn't earn, that you couldn't own, that was given to you, and someone else paid that debt, and oh, what a debt he paid. It is at the crucifixion of Christ that we see the mingling of both mercy and holiness. And my question is this, when you think about grace, do you feel the weight, not only of what you've been forgiven, but do you feel the weight of God's righteousness? How holy is he to you? How righteous is he? How precious is his glory? So when you read Lamentations 2, I want you to ask yourself some questions, questions like this. How big is God's holiness to me? Do I take my sin seriously? Have I, have I trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sins? Is my heart tuned to God's glory? You see, one very practical way that Lamentations helps us, one very practical way that Chapter two helps us, is it tunes our hearts to the glory of God. This chapter reminds us that God is holy and I'm not. It reminds us that he's righteous and our culture is broken. That sin is a payment and it must be paid. And there's a beautiful other side to this with the beautiful mercy that comes through Christ. But the reality is Christ's sacrifice is only meaningful and only necessary because of the problem of sin and the problem of God's holiness with the presence of sin in the world. Lament keeps the weight of God's glory in the forefront of our eyes. Now, secondly, 
That was the wrath, here comes the sorrow. Verse 11, the tone and the, really the speaker almost shifts, it becomes personal. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns, my bile is poured out on the ground. There's this emotional, personal connection. He's weeping, he's sick to his stomach, he's throwing up. As he, as he witnesses the destruction and tragedy around him, Jeremiah is deeply grieved. This, this, this chapter is meant not just to inform you, it's meant to move you, which is why he talks about even innocent children are caught up in this tragedy. They, 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 they faint in the streets, they cry out in hunger, they, they faint like a wounded man. Their, their children are dying in their mother's arms. There are few things more moving than the suffering of children in the midst of tragedy, and Jeremiah pulls on those metaphors in order to help us see what's happening in the city of Jerusalem, because this moment is not just to be studied, it's meant to be mourned. Think of it as the difference between two kinds of museums. If you go to the Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., you'll have a great time. You'll see amazing things that you never knew. You'll learn facts. You'll walk out more informed about creatures and animal life and the nature of um, what our created world is all about, and you'll have a wonderful experience. You'll be informed. It's a museum of natural history. You go to another museum in the city of Washington, D.C. called the Holocaust Museum, And you're informed, but not just informed, you're informed in order to be moved. So you walk through the museum there and you'll see signs that are displayed like from memory to action, or at the end, there's a sign that says, think about what you saw, or there's a reflecting room, a chapel of sorts with a dark granite, um, a piece of granite inscribed on it are the words of Deuteronomy 4.9, only guard yourself and your soul carefully lest you forget the things your eyes saw. So there's two kinds of museums, one that informs the mind and another that informs the mind to move the heart. That's what Lamentations 2 is like. It is meant not just so you know facts about what happened in Jerusalem, no, 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 no. It's so that you know what lies underneath and what lies above. The warning here is strong because the destruction is widespread. Verse 14, your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The picture is bleak, and we learn about the spiritual component of this in verse 14. We find that spiritual leaders did not give people the truth of God's word. They avoid dealing with the sins of God's people. They gave the people misleading oracles. And so underneath the city of of Jerusalem and underneath the destruction was a, a very significant spiritual problem. Judgment had come because people weren't taking their sins seriously. Do you know this is why a regular gathering of God's people on the Lord's Day is important? Why a regular hearing of God's word is important because over time our souls and our hearts in the midst of the world in which we live begin to think that God isn't that holy and I'm pretty good. We begin to think my sin isn't that bad. After all, there's so many other people doing it and what we need is a regular dose of the blunt reality of God's word to awaken us as to who he is, who we are, so we can keep running back to Christ for mercy and grace. It's not so we can lament over ourselves to make ourselves better. It is to remind ourselves who we really are and who he is. In many respects, the Lord's Day is a wake-up day for us to be awakened to who we are, to feel the blunt force of the Spirit, maybe in some of you even now, doing something inside of your soul to saying, wake up, stop messing around, stop trifling. Do you know who you're dealing with? 586 B.C., God leveled the city, and you, 
You may be able to think of names and faces of people he leveled because of the natural consequences of forgetting who he is. Verses 15 and 16, the enemies of Judah rejoice over their defeat. Jeremiah even puts the words of Psalm 48-2 in the mouths of the Babylonian army where it says, the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth. That's what they called themselves. Look at them now. To make matters worse, it all happened at the command of the Lord in verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you. So here it is, their sorrow, and God was behind it. Do you know that the cross of Christ and the crucifixion was not something that God just allowed? Acts chapter two, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The judgment of God poured out on the Son did not happen by accident. God was on a mission to provide atonement, and the sacrifice of his Son was a part of that plan. In the same way that it feels as though God has abandoned his people in Lamentations chapter two, Jesus himself cries out on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? So God isn't there. God is setting in motion redemption, and it comes at the cost of Jesus' life, and he is the one who experiences separation from God. And the beautiful and yet tragic irony of the moment in the cross is that Jesus did not just save you from your sins if you've received him. Listen to me, he saved you from God. And when you stand before him, if you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and you see him in all that he is, and you know all that you are, and you see what Christ has done for you, all of eternity will be spent basking in the beauty of this redemption that you could never earn, you could have never bought, this redemption that came to you because of God's kind grace to you and the way in which this redemption protects you from a holiness that you and your sinfulness would have been absolutely destroyed in had you not had the protection of the righteousness of another given to you because of grace that we have through Christ. All of eternity, we will bask in the beauty of the mercy of God, but that mercy is only mercy because of the holiness of who he is. And friends, I don't think we have the foggiest idea how big and wide and substantive that holiness is. Isaiah says, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, he, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. On him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And then finally, there's an appeal. The final section, verses 18 to the end not only produces this sorrow, but now there's an appeal. The, the people's hearts in judgment are tuned and they are crying out to God. Verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Let your eyes, 
Your eyes know respite, arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. What's happened is that in judgment and in discipline, the people finally are desperate. Now they long for God to hear them. And I have to imagine there are some of you that because of the circumstances in your life, because of the hardship that has come, you are finally desperate that today may be the day when you will finally open your ears and listen to what it is that God is trying to tell you. And everything that's happened in your life up until this point are all part of God's divine design to get your attention. The Puritans called it the holy hound of heaven is after you and he wants to redeem you and save you if you will just simply hear his voice and stop resisting and running in your own way. They appeal directly to God. Verse 20, look, O Lord, and see with whom have you dealt thus. And then he gives two vivid examples. I mean, this is very vivid, horrific language. Should women eat the fruit of their womb? I mean, what's worse than that? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? I mean, what he's saying is, from a cultural and societal standpoint, it can't get any worse. The city is ruined, the people are dead, the nation is destroyed, God has turned against his own people for their own sinfulness. In verse 21, he says, you summoned as if to a festival my terrors on every side. It's like God's calling out terror. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped and survived. Those whom I have held and raised, my enemy destroyed. They are appealing to him and crying out to him in the midst of this dark moment. It is similar to what the prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 3.2, that Lord, in the day of wrath, remember mercy. In other words, listen to me very clearly, especially if this is like your first time in church in a long time. I don't want to freak you out, like this is why I don't come to church, because of this. <laughs> Friend, I want you to understand that God's goal was to feel like an adversary here, to get their attention, so that he could be their restorer. So what you see is a little slice of what God is like. There's a whole nother piece. In the cross, you see the punishment of sin, and in the resurrection, you see the victory over the grave. In the cross, you see God's utter wrath against the rebellion of mankind, and in the resurrected Christ, we have the beautiful offering of justification to those who put their faith in Jesus. So here's the deal. If you're not a follower of Jesus, it may be that you're here today because of this particular message and this particular moment. It may be that God in his infinite wisdom is drawing you to himself. All of the circumstances of your life are leading up to this moment, and it may be that God's trying to get your attention, and if that's the case, you know it. I don't have to suggest that. You know it. It may feel like everywhere you've turned, you've been resisted. And I just want to tell you that if today you are broken over your sin, and if you're tired of running, and you're tired of running your own life, and if you're ready to trust Christ, why not do that right now? Why not simply say to him, Jesus, I'm done. I'm a sinner, and I need you to take over my life. I believe that Jesus is Lord, and in so doing, you move from darkness to life, 
Darkness to light, from death to life. Why wait one moment longer? Well, let me put it this way. What else do you need to hear? Many of you are followers of Jesus. Some of you right now are under what you could describe as the discipline of God. It's not, I assure you, that God is punishing you for your sins, but it is that in his kindness he wants your attention for your own good. And so the pain and the struggle and the hard circumstances in your life have served to awaken you to your need to take sin more seriously or to treat God's glory with more respect. And so the invitation to you is, why not cry out for him for mercy? And though you've come a hundred times for mercy and grace, you come again and again and again thanking God that he hasn't let you run your own way, but instead puts blunt forces in your way in order to tune your heart, to sing his song, to play his symphony, and to have your life in conformity with his. Get this, God loves you enough, he won't let you run your life. So why not just say okay? Finally, this text is an important warning that every one of us who are believers should heed, regardless of what, whatever's going on in your life right now. Lamentations reminds us that God is holy. And lament helps us to be reminded about that. I was having a conversation with a brother this week, and he said, you know, Lamentations has been helpful in my battle with temptations. I said, tell me more about that. And essentially what he's saying is that as we lament our own sins, as we lament sin around us, as we spend time just going there, you walk out into the world and you see temptations differently. You see the brokenness around you differently. It awakens your heart to the holiness of God and the depravity of sin, and it causes the lure of sin to be a little less glossy. It lets the temptation have a little less stronghold because you've basked in the brokenness of the world and the holiness of God and you walk out into the world with different eyes. I promise you, you will walk out of this sanctuary and you will be in the area of our atrium and you will go out into our community differently today. At least you should because of Lamentations chapter two. Your eyes will be awakened, your heart will see things that you would not see apart from Lamentations two. This text invites us to the sober warning that our hearts need to be tuned again and again and again and again to God's glory. Listen to Hebrews 12. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. In other words, Read your Bible and see what he did. Let us, verse 28, Hebrews 12, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. And the beautiful thing about that image and what lament helps us to do is it reminds us that there's pain in the world, there's brokenness in the world, there's a sufficient sacrifice named Jesus, 
and all of it is because of the holiness of God. And lament tunes our hearts. Lamentations tunes our heart to the greatness of God and his holiness. So what song is playing in your soul right now? Father, I ask you now to make your word clear in our hearts as we respond to you. I pray that there would be people today who will be converted. I pray that you will draw people to yourself this very day, that this would be the day, January 31st, 2016. That was the day I came to Christ. I saw, I believed, I was forgiven. And I pray that you'd help those who are followers of Jesus to see this vision and then to be impacted by it and how we talk, how we act, how we live, how we think. In the quietness of this moment, I'd like to give you just a little space just to talk to the Lord about what is going on inside of your soul right now. Is your heart hardened? Are you sensitive to sin in your life? Father, we rejoice in the grace and mercy of Christ, and we are so thankful that there's the ability to be forgiven, the ability to be made right with you because of Jesus. So help us now to be a joyful people who tremble at the beauty of your word and at the costliness of grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few things before I give benediction. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus and you want to be, I'll be right here. I'd love to talk to you. You don't need to wait another day. I'll be right here. I'd love to talk with you. Secondly, if you are a follower of Jesus, there's probably somebody who you wish was in the seat next to you who's not there today. Somebody in your world who, oh, if they could just see. And I wanna encourage you, we're eight weeks away from Easter. Be a great opportunity this week to see the world through those lens, those eyes, and begin to think, God, who have you put in my world who I need to care for in terms of seeing them come to faith in Christ? And finally, receive Romans chapter 11 at the very end, which says, oh, the depth of the riches and the knowledge and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's ever been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen.